Chapter Eleven, Part Two, of the Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They walked with their bodies moving in complex unity, close together. He held her hand, and they went the long way round by the road to be farther. Always she felt as if she were supported off her feet, as if her feet were light as little breezes in motion. He would kiss her again but not again that night, with the same deep, reaching kiss. She was aware now, aware of what a kiss might be, and so it was more difficult to come to him. She went to bed, feeling all warm with electric warmth, as if the gush of dawn were within her, upholding her, and she slept deeply, sweetly, oh so sweetly. In the morning she felt sound as an ear of wheat, fragrant and firm and full, they continued to be lovers, in the first wondering state of unrealization. Ursula told nobody, she was entirely lost in her own world. Yet some strange affectation made her seek for a spurious confidence. She had at school a quiet, meditative, serious-souled friend called Ethel, and to Ethel must Ursula confide the story. Ethel listened absorbedly, with bowed, unbetraying head, whilst Ursula told her secret. Oh, it was so lovely, his gentle, delicate way of making love. Ursula talked like a practised lover. Do you think, asked Ursula, it is wicked to let a man kiss you? Real kisses, not flirting. I should think, said Ethel, it depends. He kissed me under the ash-trees on Cossetay Hill. Do you think it was wrong? When? On Thursday night, when he was seeing me home. But real kisses, real. He is an officer in the army. "'What time was it?' asked the deliberate Ethel. "'I don't know. About half-past nine. There was a pause. "'I think it's wrong,' said Ethel, lifting her head with impatience. "'You don't know him.' She spoke with some contempt. "'Yes, I do. He is half a Pole, and a Baron, too. In England he is equivalent to a Lord. My grandmother was his father's friend.' But the two friends were hostile. It was as if Ursula wanted to divide herself from her acquaintances, in asserting her connection with Anton, as she now called him. He came a good deal to Cossethay, because her mother was fond of him. Anna Brangwen became something of a grand dame, with Skrebensky, very calm, taking things for granted. "'Aren't the children in bed?' cried Ursula, petulantly, as she came in with the young man. "'They will be in bed in half an hour,' said the mother. "'There is no peace,' cried Ursula. "'The children must live, Ursula,' said her mother and Skrebensky was against Ursula in this. Why should she be so insistent? But then, as Ursula knew, he did not have the perpetual tyranny of young children about him. He treated her mother with great courtliness, to which Mrs. Brangwen returned an easy, friendly hospitality. Something pleased the girl in her mother's calm assumption of state. It seemed impossible to abate Mrs. Brangwen's position. She could never be beneath anyone in public relation. Between Brangwen and Skrebensky there was an unbridgeable silence. Sometimes the two men made a slight conversation, but there was no interchange. Ursula rejoiced to see her father retreating into himself against the young man. She was proud of Skrebensky in the house. His lounging, languorous indifference irritated her, and yet cast a spell over her. She knew it was the outcome of a spirit of laissez-aller combined with profound young vitality yet it irritated her deeply. 
Notwithstanding, she was proud of him as he lounged in his lambent fashion in her home. He was so attentive and courteous to her mother and to herself all the time. It was wonderful to have his awareness in the room. She felt rich and augmented by it, as if she were the positive attraction and he the flow towards her. And his courtesy and his agreement might be all her mother's, but the lambent flicker of his body was for herself. She held it. She must ever prove her power. "'I meant to show you my little wood-carving,' she said. "'I'm sure it's not worth showing that,' said her father. "'Would you like to see it?' she asked, leaning towards the door. And his body had risen from the chair, though his face seemed to want to agree with her parents. "'It is in the shed,' she said, and he followed her out of the door, whatever his feelings might be. In the shed they played at kisses, really played at kisses. It was a delicious, exciting game. She turned to him, her face all laughing like a challenge, and he accepted the challenge at once. He twined his hand full of her hair, and gently, with his hand wrapped round with hair behind her head, gradually brought her face nearer to his, whilst she laughed breathless with challenge, and his eyes gleamed with answer, with enjoyment of the game. And he kissed her, asserting his will over her, and she kissed him back, asserting her deliberate enjoyment of him. Daring and reckless and dangerous they knew it was, their game, each playing with fire, not with love. A sort of defiance of all the world possessed her in it. She would kiss him just because she wanted to. And a daredevilry in him, like a cynicism, a cut at everything he pretended to serve, retaliated in him. She was very beautiful then, so wide-opened, so radiant, so palpitating, exquisitely vulnerable and poignantly, wrongly, throwing herself to risk. It roused a sort of madness in him. Like a flower shaking and wide-opened in the sun, she tempted him and challenged him. And he accepted the challenge. Something went fixed in him. And under all her laughing, poignant recklessness was the quiver of tears. That almost sent him mad, mad with desire, with pain, whose only issue was through possession of her body. So, shaken, afraid, they went back to her parents in the kitchen, and dissimulated. But something was roused in both of them that they could not now allay. It intensified and heightened their senses, they were more vivid and powerful in their being. But under it all was a poignant sense of transience. It was a magnificent self-assertion on the part of both of them. He asserted himself before her, he felt himself infinitely male and infinitely irresistible. She asserted herself before him. She knew herself infinitely desirable, and hence infinitely strong. And after all, what could either of them get from such a passion but a sense of his or of her own maximum self, in contradistinction to all the rest of life? Wherein was something finite and sad, for the human soul at its maximum wants a sense of the infinite. Nevertheless, it was begun now, this passion, and must go on. The passion of Ursula to know her own maximum self, limited and so defined against him. She could limit and define herself against him, the male. She could be her maximum self, female, oh female, triumphant, for one moment in exquisite assertion against the male, in supreme contradistinction to the male. The next afternoon, when he came prowling, she went with him across to the church. Her father was gradually gathering in anger against him. Her mother was hardening in anger against her. But the parents were naturally tolerant in action. 
They went together across the churchyard, Ursula and Skrebensky, and ran to hiding in the church. It was dimmer in there than the sunny afternoon outside, but the mellow glow among the bowed stone was very sweet. The windows burned in ruby and in blue. They made magnificent arras to their bower of secret stone. "'What a perfect place for a rendezvous,' he said, in a hushed voice, glancing round. She too glanced round the familiar interior. The dimness and stillness chilled her, but her eyes lit up with daring. Here, here she would assert her indomitable gorgeous female self, here. Here she would open her female flower like a flame, in this dimness that was more passionate than light. They hung apart a moment, then wilfully turned to each other for the desired contact. She put her arms round him, she cleaved her body to his, and with her hands pressed upon his shoulders, on his back, she seemed to feel right through him, to know his young, tense body right through. And it was so fine, so hard, yet so exquisitely subject and under her control. She reached him her mouth and drank his full kiss, drank it fuller and fuller. And it was so good, it was very, very good. She seemed to be filled with his kiss, as if she had drunk strong, glowing sunshine. She glowed all inside, the sunshine seemed to beat upon her heart underneath, she had drunk so beautifully. She drew away and looked at him, radiant, exquisitely, glowingly beautiful, and satisfied, but radiant as an illumined cloud. To him this was bitter, that she was so radiant and satisfied. She laughed upon him, blind to him, so full of her own bliss, never doubting but that he was the same as she was, and radiant as an angel she went with him out of the church, as if her feet were beams of light that walked on flowers for footsteps. He went beside her, his soul clenched, his body unsatisfied. Was she going to make this easy triumph over him? For him there was now no self-bliss, only pain and confused anger. It was high summer, and the hay-harvest was almost over. It would be finished on Saturday. On Saturday, however, Skrebensky was going away. He could not stay longer. Having decided to go, he became very tender and loving to her, kissing her gently, with such soft, sweet, insidious closeness that they were both of them intoxicated. The very last Friday of his stay he met her coming out of school, and took her to tea in the town. Then he had a motor-car to drive her home. Her excitement at riding in a motor-car was greatest of all. He too was very proud of this last coup. He saw Ursula kindle and flare up to the romance of the situation. She raised her head like a young horse, snuffing with wild delight. The car swerved round a corner, and Ursula was swung against Skrebensky. The contact made her aware of him. With a swift, foraging impulse she sought for his hand, and clasped it in her own, so close, so combined, as if they were two children. The wind blew in on Ursula's face, the mud flew in a soft, wild rush from the wheels, the country was blackish-green, with the silver of new hay here and there, and masses of trees under a silver-gleaming sky. Her hand tightened on his with a new consciousness, troubled. They did not speak for some time, but sat, hand-fast, with averted, shining faces. And every now and then the car swung her against him and they waited for the motion to bring them together. Yet they stared out of the windows, mute. She saw the familiar country racing by, but now it was no familiar country, 
It was Wonderland. There was the hemlock stone, standing on its grassy hill. Strange it looked on this wet, early summer evening, remote, in a magic land. Some rooks were flying out of the trees. Ah, if only she and Skrebensky could get out, dismount into this enchanted land where nobody had ever been before. Then they would be enchanted people. They would put off the dull, customary self. If she were wandering there, on that hill-slope, under a silvery, changing sky, in which many rooks melted like hurrying showers of blots, if they could walk past the wetted hay-swaths, smelling the early evening, and pass into the wood, where the honeysuckle scent was sweet on the cold tang in the air, and showers of drops fell when one brushed a bough, cold and lovely on the face. But she was here with him in the car, close to him, and the wind was rushing on her lifted, eager face, blowing back the hair. He turned and looked at her, at her face clean as a chiselled thing, her hair chiselled back by the wind, her fine nose keen and lifted. It was agony to him, seeing her swift and clean-cut and virgin. He wanted to kill himself, and throw his detested carcass at her feet. His desire to turn round on himself and rend himself was an agony to him. Suddenly she glanced at him. He seemed to be crouching towards her, reaching. He seemed to wince between the brows. But instantly, seeing her lighted eyes and radiant face, his expression changed. His old reckless laugh shone to her. She pressed his hand in utter delight, and he abided. And suddenly she stooped and kissed his hand, bent her head and caught it to her mouth in generous homage. And the blood burned in him. Yet he remained still. He made no move. She started. They were swinging into Cossete. Skrebensky was going to leave her. But it was all so magic. Her cup was so full of bright wine. Her eyes could only shine. He tapped and spoke to the man. The car swung up by the yew-trees. She gave him her hand and said good-bye, naive and brief as a schoolgirl. And she stood watching him go, her face shining. The fact of his driving on meant nothing to her, she was so filled by her own bright ecstasy. She did not see him go, for she was filled with light, which was of him, bright with an amazing light as she was, how could she miss him? In her bedroom she threw her arms in the air, in clear pain of magnificence. Oh, it was her transfiguration, she was beyond herself, she wanted to fling herself into all the hidden brightness of the air. It was there, it was there, if she could but meet it. But the next day she knew he had gone. Her glory had partly died down, but never from her memory. It was too real. Yet it was gone by, leaving a wistfulness. A deeper yearning came into her soul, a new reserve. She shrank from touch and question. She was very proud, but very new and very sensitive. Oh, that no one should lay hands on her! She was happier running on by herself. Oh, it was a joy to run along the lanes without seeing things, yet being with them. It was such a joy to be alone with all one's riches. The holidays came, when she was free. She spent most of her time running on by herself, curled up in a squirrel place in the garden, lying in a hammock in the coppice, while the birds came near, near, so near. Oh, in rainy weather she flitted to the marsh, and lay hidden with her book in a hayloft. All the time she dreamed of him, sometimes definitely, but when she was happiest, only vaguely. 
He was the warm colouring of her dreams, he was the hot blood beating within them. When she was less happy, out of sorts, she pondered over his appearance, his clothes, the buttons with his regimental badge, which he had given her, or she tried to imagine his life in barracks, or she conjured up a vision of herself as she appeared in his eyes. His birthday was in August, and she spent some pains on making him a cake. She felt that it would not be in good taste for her to give him a present. Their correspondence was brief, mostly an exchange of postcards, not at all frequent, but with her cake she must send him a letter. Dear Anton, the sunshine has come back specially for your birthday, I think. I made the cake myself, and wish you many happy returns of the day. Don't eat it if it is not good. Mother hopes you will come and see us when you are near enough. I am your sincere friend, Ursula Brangwen. It bored her to write a letter, even to him. After all, writing words on paper had nothing to do with him and her. The fine weather had set in. The cutting machine went on from dawn till sunset, chattering round the fields. She heard from Skrebensky. He too was on duty in the country, on Salisbury Plain. He was now a second lieutenant in a field troop. He would have a few days off shortly, and would come to the marsh for the wedding. Fred Brangwen was going to marry a schoolmistress out of Ilkeston as soon as corn harvest was at an end. The dim, blue and gold of a hot, sweet autumn saw the close of the corn harvest. To Ursula it was as if the world had opened its softest, purest flower, its chicory flower, its meadow saffron. The sky was blue and sweet, the yellow leaves down the lane seemed like free, wandering flowers as they chittered round the feet making a keen, poignant, almost unbearable music to her heart. And the scents of autumn were like a summer madness to her. She fled away from the little purple-red button chrysanthemums like a frightened dryad. The bright yellow little chrysanthemums smelled so strong, her feet seemed to dither in a drunken dance. Then her Uncle Tom appeared, always like the cynical Bacchus in the picture. He would have a jolly wedding, a harvest supper and a wedding feast in one, a tent in the home close, and a band for dancing, and a great feast out of doors. Fred demurred, but Tom must be satisfied. Also, Laura, a handsome, clever girl, the bride, she also must have a great and jolly feast. It appealed to her educated sense. She had been to Salisbury Training College, knew folk songs and Morris dancing. So the preparations were begun directed by Tom Brangwen. A marquee was set up on the home close. Two large bonfires were prepared. Musicians were hired. Feast made ready. Skrebensky was to come, arriving in the morning. Ursula had a new white dress of soft crepe and a white hat. She liked to wear white. With her black hair and clear golden skin, she looked southern, or rather tropical, like a creole. She wore no colour whatsoever. She trembled that day as she appeared to go down to the wedding. She was to be a bridesmaid. Skrebensky would not arrive till afternoon. The wedding was at two o'clock. As the wedding party returned home, Skrebensky stood in the parlour at the marsh. Through the window he saw Tom Brangwen, who was best man, coming up the garden path, most elegant in cutaway coat and white slip and spats, with Ursula laughing on his arm. Tom Brangwen was handsome with his womanish colouring and dark eyes and black close-cut moustache. But there was something subtly coarse and suggestive about him for all his beauty, his strange bestial nostrils, 
opened so hard and wide, and his well-shaped head, almost disquieting in its nakedness, rather bald from the front, and all its soft fullness betrayed. Skrebensky saw the man rather than the woman. She saw only the slender, unchangeable youth waiting there, inscrutable, like her fate. He was beyond her, with his loose, slightly horsey appearance that made him seem very manly and foreign. Yet his face was smooth and soft and impressionable. She shook hands with him, and her voice was like the rousing of a bird startled by the dawn. "'Isn't it nice,' she cried, "'to have a wedding?' There were bits of coloured confetti lodged on her dark hair. Again the confusion came over him, as if he were losing himself and becoming all vague, undefined, inchoate. Yet he wanted to be hard, manly, horsey, and he followed her. There was a light tea, and the guests scattered. The real feast was for the evening. Ursula walked out with Skrebensky through the stackyard to the fields, and up the embankment to the canal side. The new corn-stacks were big and golden as they went by. An army of white geese marched aside in braggart protest. Ursula was light as a white ball of down. Skrebensky drifted beside her, indefinite. His old form loosened, and another self, grey, vague, drifting out as from a bud. They talked lightly of nothing. The blue way of the canal wound softly between the autumn hedges, on towards the greenness of a small hill. On the left was the whole black agitation of colliery and railway, and the town which rose on its hill, the church tower topping all. The round white dot of the clock on the tower was distinct in the evening light. That way, Ursula felt, was the way to London, through the grim, alluring seethe of the town. On the other hand was the evening, mellow over the green water-meadows and the winding alder-trees beside the river, and the pale stretches of stubble beyond. There the evening glowed softly, and even a peewit was flapping in solitude and peace. Ursula and Anton Skrebensky walked along the ridge of the canal between. The berries on the hedges were crimson and bright red above the leaves. The glow of evening and the wheeling of the solitary peewit and the faint cry of the birds came to meet the shuffling noise of the pits, the dark, fuming stress of the town opposite, and they too walked the blue strip of waterway the ribbon of sky between. He was looking, Ursula thought, very beautiful, because of a flush of sunburn on his hands and face. He was telling her how he had learned to shoe horses and select cattle fit for killing. "'Do you like to be a soldier?' she asked. "'I'm not exactly a soldier,' he replied. "'But you only do things for wars,' she said. "'Yes. Would you like to go to war?' "'I? Well, it would be exciting. If there were a war, I would want to go.' A strange, distracted feeling came over her, a sense of potent unrealities. Why would you want to go? I should be doing something. It would be genuine. It's a sort of toy life as it is. But what would you be doing if you went to war? I would be making railways or bridges, working like a nigger. But you'd only make them to be pulled down again when the armies are done with them. It seems just as much a game. If you call war a game, what is it? It's about the most serious business there is, fighting. A sense of hard separateness came over her. Why is fighting more serious than anything else, she asked. You either kill or get killed, and I suppose it is serious enough, killing. But when you're dead, you don't matter any more, she said. He was silenced for a moment. 
"'But the result matters,' he said. "'It matters whether we settle the Mahdi or not.' "'Not to you, nor me. "'We don't care about Khartoum. "'You want to have room to live in, "'and somebody has to make room. "'But I don't want to live in the desert of Sahara. "'Do you?' she replied, laughing with antagonism. "'I don't, but we've got to back up those who do. "'Why have we? "'Where is the nation if we don't? "'But we aren't the nation.' There are heaps of other people who are the nation. They might say they weren't either. Well, if everybody said it, there wouldn't be a nation. But I should still be myself, she asserted brilliantly. You wouldn't be yourself if there were no nation. Why not? Because you'd just be a prey to everybody and anybody. How a prey? They'd come and take everything you'd got. Well, they couldn't take much even then. I don't care what they take. I'd rather have a robber who carried me off than a millionaire who gave me everything you can buy. That's because you are a romanticist. Yes, I am. I want to be romantic. I hate houses that never go away, and people just living in the houses. It's all so stiff and stupid. I hate soldiers. They are stiff and wooden. What do you fight for, really? I would fight for the nation. For all that, you aren't the nation. What would you do for yourself? I belong to the nation, and must do my duty by the nation. But when it didn't need your services in particular, when there is no fighting, what would you do then? He was irritated. I would do what everybody else does. What? Nothing. I would be in readiness for when I was needed. The answer came in exasperation. It seems to me, she answered, as if you weren't anybody, as if there weren't anybody there where you are. Are you anybody, really? You seem like nothing to me. They had walked till they had reached a wharf, just above a lock. There an empty barge, painted with a red and yellow cabin hood, but with a long, coal-black hold, was lying moored. A man, lean and grimy, was sitting on a box against the cabin side by the door, smoking, and nursing a baby that was wrapped in a drab shawl, and looking into the glow of evening. A woman bustled out, sent a pail dashing into the canal, drew her water, and bustled in again children's voices were heard. A thin blue smoke ascended from the cabin chimney. There was a smell of cooking. Ursula, white as a moth, lingered to look. Skrebensky lingered by her. The man glanced up. "'Good evening,' he called, half impudent, half attracted. He had blue eyes which glanced impudently from his grimy face. "'Good evening,' said Ursula, delighted. "'Isn't it nice now?' "'Aye,' said the man. "'Very nice.' His mouth was red under his ragged, sandy moustache. His teeth were white as he laughed. "'Oh, but,' stammered Ursula, laughing, "'it is. Why do you say it as if it weren't? Happen for them as is child-nursing, it's none so rosy.' "'May I look inside your barge?' asked Ursula. "'There's nobody'll stop you. You can come if you like.' The barge lay at the opposite bank at the wharf. It was the Annabel, belonging to J. Ruth, of Loughborough, the man watched Ursula closely from his keen, twinkling eyes. His fair hair was wispy on his grimed forehead. Two dirty children appeared to see who was talking. Ursula glanced at the great lock gates. They were shut, and the water was sounding, spurting and trickling down in the gloom beyond. On this side the bright water was almost to the top of the gate. She went boldly across and round to the wharf. Stooping from the bank she peeped into the cabin where was a red glow of fire and the shadowy figure of a woman. She did not want to go down. 
"'You'll mess your frock,' said the man, warningly. "'I'll be careful,' she answered. "'May I come?' "'Ah, come if you like.' She gathered her skirts, lowered her foot to the side of the boat, and leapt down, laughing. Coal dust flew up. The woman came to the door. She was plump and sandy-haired, young, with an odd, stubby nose. "'Oh, you will make a mess of yourself!' she cried, surprised and laughing with a little wonder. "'I did want to see. Isn't it lovely living on a barge?' asked Ursula. "'I don't live on one altogether,' said the woman, cheerfully. "'She's got her parlour and her plush suite in Loughborough,' said her husband, with just pride. Ursula peeped into the cabin, where saucepans were boiling and some dishes were on the table. It was very hot. Then she came out again. The man was talking to the baby. It was a blue-eyed, fresh-faced thing with a floss of red-gold hair. "'Is it a boy or a girl?' she asked. "'It's a girl. Aren't you a girl, eh?' he shouted at the infant, shaking his head its little face wrinkled up into the oddest, funniest smile. "'Oh!' cried Ursula. "'Oh, the dear! Oh, how nice when she laughs!' "'She'll laugh hard enough,' said the father. "'What is her name?' asked Ursula. "'She hasn't got a name. She's not worth one,' said the man. "'Are oh, you? You fag-end and nothing!' he shouted to the baby. The baby laughed. "'No, we've been that busy. We've never took her to the registry office,' came the woman's voice. "'She was born on the boat here.' "'But you know what you're going to call her?' asked Ursula. "'We did think of Gladys Emily,' said the mother. "'We thought her nat at the sort,' said the father. "'Hark at him! What do you want?' cried the mother, in exasperation. "'She'll be called Annabel after the boat she was born on.' "'She's not, so there,' said the mother, viciously defiant. The father sat in humorous malice, grinning. "'Well, you'll see,' he said and Ursula could tell, by the woman's vibrating exasperation, that he would never give way. "'They're all nice names,' she said. "'Call her Gladys Annabel Emily.' "'Nay, that's heavy laden, if you like,' he answered. "'You see,' cried the woman, "'he's that pig-headed. "'And she's so nice, and she laughs, and she hasn't even got a name,' crooned Ursula to the child. "'Let me hold her,' she added. He yielded her the child that smelt of babies, but it had such blue, wide, china-blue eyes, and it laughed so oddly, with such a taking grimace. Ursula loved it. She cooed and talked to it. It was such an odd, exciting child. "'What's your name?' the man suddenly asked of her. "'My name is Ursula. Ursula Brangwen,' she replied. "'Ursula!' he exclaimed, dumbfounded. "'There was a saint, Ursula. It's a very old name,' she added hastily, in justification. "'Hey, mother!' he called. There was no answer. "'Pem!' he called. "'Can't you hear?' "'What?' came the short answer. "'What about Ursula?' he grinned. "'What about what?' came the answer, and the woman appeared in the doorway, ready for combat. "'Ursula! It's the lassie's name there,' he said gently. The woman looked the young girl up and down. Evidently she was attracted by her slim, graceful, new beauty, her effect of white elegance, and her tender way of holding the child. "'Why, how do you write it?' the mother asked, awkward now she was touched. Ursula spelled out her name. The man looked at the woman. A bright, confused flush came over the mother's face, a sort of luminous shyness. "'It's not a common name, is it?' she exclaimed, excited as by an adventure. "'Are you going to have it, then?' he asked. "'I'd rather have it than Annabel,' she said, decisively. "'And I'd rather have it than Gladys Ember,' he replied. There was a silence. Ursula looked up. 
"'Will you really call her Ursula?' she asked. "'Ursula Ruth,' replied the man, laughing vainly, as pleased as if he had found something. It was now Ursula's turn to be confused. "'It does sound awfully nice,' she said. "'I must give her something, and I haven't got anything at all.' She stood in a white dress, wondering, down there in the barge. The lean man sitting near to her watched her as if she were a strange being, as if she lit up his face. His eyes smiled on her, boldly, and yet with exceeding admiration underneath. "'Could I give her my necklace?' she said. It was the little necklace made of pieces of amethyst and topaz and pearl and crystal, strung at intervals on a little golden chain which her Uncle Tom had given her. She was very fond of it. She looked at it lovingly when she had taken it from her neck. "'Is it valuable?' the man asked her curiously. "'I think so,' she replied. "'The stones and pearls are real. It is worth three or four pounds,' said Skrebensky, from the wharf above. Ursula could tell he disapproved of her. "'I must give it to your baby. May I?' she said to the bargee. He flushed and looked away into the evening. "'Nay,' he said, "'it's not for me to say.' "'What would your father and mother say?' cried the woman curiously from the door. "'It is my own,' said Ursula, and she dangled the little glittering string before the baby. The infant spread its little fingers, but it could not grasp. Ursula closed the tiny hand over the jewel. The baby waved the bright ends of the string. Ursula had given her necklace away. She felt sad, but she did not want it back. The jewel swung from the baby's hand and fell in a little heap on the cold, dusty bottom of the barge. The man groped for it, with a kind of careful reverence. Ursula noticed the coarsened, blunted fingers groping at the little jewelled heap. The skin was red on the back of the hand, the fair hairs glistened stiffly. It was a thin, sinewy, capable hand nevertheless, and Ursula liked it. He took up the necklace carefully and blew the coal dust from it as it lay in the hollow of his hand. He seemed still and attentive. He held out his hand with the necklace, shining small in its hard, black hollow. "'Take it back,' he said. Ursula hardened with a kind of radiance. "'No,' she said. "'It belongs to little Ursula.' And she went to the infant and fastened the necklace round its warm, soft, weak little neck. There was a moment of confusion. Then the father bent over his child. "'What do you say?' he said. "'Do you say thank you? "'Do you say thank you, Ursula?' "'Her name's Ursula now,' said the mother, smiling a little bit ingratiatingly from the door and she came out to examine the jewel on the child's neck. "'It is Ursula, isn't it?' said Ursula Brangwen. The father looked up at her with an intimate, half-gallant, half-impudent, but wistful look. His captive soul loved her, but his soul was captive, he knew, always. She wanted to go. He set a little ladder for her to climb up to the wharf. She kissed the child, which was in its mother's arms, then she turned away. The mother was effusive. The man stood silent by the ladder. Ursula joined Skrebensky. The two young figures crossed the lock, above the shining yellow water. The bargeman watched them go. "'I loved them,' she was saying. "'He was so gentle, oh, so gentle. And the baby was such a dear.' "'Was he gentle?' said Skrebensky. "'The woman had been a servant, I'm sure of that.' Ursula winced. "'But I loved his impudence. It was so gentle underneath.' She went hastening on, gladdened by having met the grimy, lean man with the ragged moustache. He gave her a pleasant, warm feeling. He made her feel the richness of her own life. 
Skrebensky somehow had created a deadness round her, a sterility, as if the world were ashes. They said very little as they hastened home to the big supper. He was envying the lean father of three children, for his impudent directness and his worship of the woman in Ursula, a worship of body and soul together, the man's body and soul wistful, and worshipping the body and spirit of the girl, with a desire that knew the inaccessibility of its object, but was only glad to know that the perfect thing existed, glad to have had a moment of communion. Why could not he himself desire a woman so? Why did he never really want a woman, not with the whole of him, never loved, never worshipped, only just physically wanted her? But he would want her with his body, let his soul do as it would. A kind of flame of physical desire was gradually beating up in the marsh, kindled by Tom Brangwen, and by the fact of the wedding of Fred, the shy, fair, stiff-set farmer with the handsome, half-educated girl. Tom Brangwen, with all his secret power, seemed to fan the flame that was rising. The bride was strongly attracted by him, and he was exerting his influence on another beautiful, fair girl, chill and burning as the sea, who said witty things which he appreciated, making her glint with more like phosphorescence. And her greenish eyes seemed to rock a secret, and her hands like mother-of-pearl seemed luminous, transparent, as if the secret were burning visible in them. At the end of supper, during dessert, the music began to play, violins and flutes. Everybody's face was lit up. A glow of excitement prevailed. When the little speeches were over, and the port remained unreached for any more, those who wished were invited out to the open for coffee. The night was warm. Bright stars were shining, the moon was not yet up, and under the stars burned two great, red, flameless fires, and round these lights and lanterns hung. The marquee stood open before a fire, with its lights inside. The young people flocked out into the mysterious night. There was sound of laughter and voices, and a scent of coffee. The farm buildings loomed dark in the background. Figures, pale and dark, flitted about, intermingling. The red fire glinted on a white or a silken skirt. The lanterns gleamed on the transient heads of the wedding guests. To Ursula it was wonderful. She felt she was a new being. The darkness seemed to breathe like the sides of some great beast. The haystacks loomed, half-revealed, a crowd of them, a dark, fecund lair just behind. Waves of delirious darkness ran through her soul. She wanted to let go. She wanted to reach and be amongst the flashing stars. She wanted to race with her feet and be beyond the confines of this earth. She was mad to be gone. It was as if a hound were straining on the leash, ready to hurl itself after a nameless quarry into the dark. And she was the quarry, and she was also the hound. The darkness was passionate, and breathing with immense, unperceived heaving. It was waiting to receive her in her flight. And how could she start, and how could she let go? She must leap from the known into the unknown. Her feet and hands beat like a madness, her breast strained as if in bonds. End of chapter 11, part 2 Read by Tony Foster